Welcome to Colly Bristow's US-UK podcast, a series which looks at some of the most common issues that arise in UK tax and estate planning. If you're a regular listener to the podcast, please do leave us a rating or review on whatever platform you're listening on. It really does help people to hear about the show, and it moves us up in what is, I'm sure, a very crowded field of US-UK tax and estate planning podcasts. I'm delighted today to be joined by Billy Matthews, a partner at Brown Advisory and their private client and charities team. Billy is a Native American, having started his career at Brown's Baltimore office before relocating to the UK. Brown is a US investment management and strategic advisory firm who advise Americans in both the US and across the world. The focus of our talk today is going to be on the US-UK market, and I'm pleased to say that Billy works out of Brown's London office. Billy, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you? Aidan, very nice to be here with you. I'm doing pretty well for a Friday. Uh, How are you doing? (laughs) I'm doing pretty well. Did I capture your background appropriately? Perfectly well. That's right. <laughs> Wonderful. So Billy is uh, joining us today to talk about a very common part of US-UK uh, investment management, which is looking at funds. Funds are a very common part of any sort of US investors portfolio. And it is also something that gives lay investors, like the which I would be, sometimes some slightly sleepless nights and some head scratching trying to work out what funds are, why they're useful, and uh, what people should be doing about them. And and in Billy, we have a perfect person to take us through some of these questions. So thinking about funds and starting right at the very beginning, Billy, I know that you said, and, and I've said to class before, that investing for American individuals or those connected with the US can be quite complicated without proper advice. And you've talked to me about your waterfall concept before. Could you give me some background or give the listeners some background on what you mean by your waterfall of tax uh, efficient savings and investing? Yeah. And just, I mean, before we actually get into actual investing, really the first major issue that we see for US connected people living in the UK is what to do with their money. I mean, I can't tell you time and time again, the conversations that I'm having where someone says, I've been here five years and I've just been building up cash because frankly, I am paralyzed by fear of doing the wrong thing with my money. If you go down the Google rabbit hole, you will very quickly become quite scared about what you can and cannot do. And so often what results in that is people building up a significant amount of cash in the UK without understanding what they should do with it. So the first general concept, and you're right, I call it the waterfall of tax-efficient savings and investing, is what should you do with your cash in a hierarchy from a tax-efficient savings and investing standpoint? And so if we think about the top, the first and best use of excess capital to me is employer pension plans, specifically when you're getting a match from your employer. That is free money. We should always take it. Um, And to the extent that you are US and UK, putting money up to the amount that you're allowed based upon your annual income is incredibly tax efficient from both a US and a UK standpoint, especially when you're getting a match from your employer. Now, for some of our clients, Aiden, they may be at the income levels where they can put very little into their employer-sponsored pension here in the UK. And so then you think about what are what are the, what is the next area that we go down? And for Americans, then it would be looking at more tax-efficient structures like IRAs or Roth IRAs. Now there are income limits associated with both of those. So you know that's probably outside the scope of the conversation today. But for for general purposes, most people can think of the fact that they can probably put about six thousand dollars a year 
into one of these US-based structures. Once the funds are invested in there, they grow income and capital gains tax-free. And depending on which one you're adding to, you can either take them out or um, leave them in without further tax. I should just jump in and say, for all of those who are regular listeners, you might recall our conversation with good uh, friend of Billy and me and uh, and alumnus to this podcast, John Bull, looking at IRAs in particular. So yes, Billy, I will I will spare you the uh, the pain of having to explain IRAs in great detail because listeners can know there is an episode um, on that exact topic should they wish. Sorry, I interrupted you. Not at all. And that was a riveting conversation. I enjoyed that. <laughs> I enjoyed that thoroughly. The, the next leg down, and this is, well, this is one that... Um, we get a lot of questions on is UK ISAs. Mm. So UK ISAs, are they appropriate for Americans? The short answer is they are appropriate, but the longer answer is that they are seen as a taxable portfolio for an American or from a US tax perspective. So you don't get the benefits of them being tax-free in both countries. The other issue that you run into with ISAs is that most ISA providers, the platforms that they are on, allow you to invest in funds. And none of those funds are appropriate from a US tax perspective. So what that leaves you with is a tax-efficient fund structure or a tax-efficient structure on the UK side, a taxable structure in the US side, but very little in terms of what you are allowed to tax-efficiently invest in within the structure. So if you are someone that is very comfortable owning direct stocks and bonds, then an ISA can make sense, especially with the current differential in tax rates between the UK and the US. That might change in the future. Um, so an ISA is probably one for most people to stay away from if they're US, UK, but for some uh, more sophisticated investors or those who like to pick individual companies, it can be an efficient structure to use. That brings me to the last and most common structure, which is just a standard taxable portfolio. Now, lots of Americans ask, where should they open this taxable portfolio? Should it be in the US? Should it be in the UK? Should it be offshore in some other jurisdiction? The reality is it doesn't really matter. You just need to think about, and we'll get onto this a bit later in the conversation, what sort of investment structures or investments you can access based upon where you open the account. Mm. I I probably do know favors to uh, the slightly ivory tower status sometimes of these discussions. Because when I think about these waterfalls, my mind always goes back to one of those um, champagne towers, you know, you sort of see in sort of 1930s hotels where someone pours the champagne at the top glass and it kind of spills down. I, it's it's what my brain, my brain goes to. It's probably not the most helpful analogy. I could probably find a slightly more of, you know, of the people analogy. But anyway, that's, <laughs> that's where uh, my I think, brain I goes. Think it's a pretty, I think it's a pretty good analogy because yeah. the reality is on those on those sorts of things, it is smaller at the top. And yeah. that is consistent with most Americans. The smallest amount, frankly, is the amount they're allowed to put into their more mm. tax-efficient savings vehicles. And then at at the end, for many of our clients, the largest pool of capital ends up becoming taxable investment structures, which are subject to tax in both the US and the UK. Which is but you want to be probably... filling up that top that top glass first. Exactly. And once it spills over, it then spills over into the next glass. Those fill up, and then it spills over, and so you take them in that kind of waterfalling order, as you said. Indeed. Yeah. yeah. Fantastic. Look, that's a really, really clear sort of canter, shall we say, through some of the really fundamentals of sort of investment management. And those I imagine are also good guidelines for general investment management anyway. Those aren't particular to the Americans. Like the particular glasses you're filling up might be different for an American in the UK, but that's just sort of sensible, prudent planning generally in the UK. Now, if we do turn back to that American 
specifically. And we're thinking about the individual who has, uh, you know, stumbled across this episode, thinking, finally, here is here is the opportunity for me to learn about sort of investing 101 uh, as an American here in the UK. How do you go about describing what that looks like, Billy? Yeah. So the, the first way I describe it is it's is it simple, but not easy. And frankly, lots of people put their head in the sand when it comes to investing because they read a bunch of very scary articles that uh, people like you and me write and put on our websites. The reality of the situation is if you know what you can and cannot own, it is fairly simple. That doesn't mean that it's easy in practice, but it is simple in concept. And so I'll go through those concepts. And so if you think about the first way that you can invest as a US-UK person is just to buy direct stocks and bonds. That is you know, buying a company like Apple, buying a company like Microsoft, any other company that you think is going to be able to, you know, produce adequate returns over the long term, just buying that company outright. That can be either the equity or the debt of those companies. One thing to be wary of when it comes to direct listed securities is often in both the US and the UK, there are direct listed securities that look and act like individual companies or stocks, but they are in fact collective investment vehicles or funds. Listed investment trusts is a good example in the UK. REITs is a good example in the US, where they would actually fall afoul of the various different tax rules, even though they look and trade like individual common stocks. Yes, absolutely. And and, and that is something that exercises a lot of people's concerns when they're thinking about investment management. And that is where we tend to get on and then swiftly off the train from the sort of the tax plan perspective is to say, you know, here is your, if you're, you're the you know, UK resident, here you are with your with your lovely US mutual fund. I'm sure it was an excellent investment opportunity for you when your father or your mother or you thought about it 10 years ago, but now you've moved to the UK. You know, we need to take you through the very exciting regime of offshore income gains. That's not something I think that anyone in America had considered when they thought this was a portfolio for you. So let's think about something a bit more sensitive to the sort of the cross-border issues that arise here. Certainly, yes. Absolutely. And so outside of direct stocks and bonds, which are quite simple and easy to implement for most most people, regardless of where they live. The, the second thing is there are non-US funds, a very small select group of non-US funds, many of them are hedge funds and, and not enlisted normal fund structure that produce what's called PFIC reporting, passive foreign investment company report, annual reporting. We'll talk a little bit more about that a, a bit later, I think, but just know that there are some foreign funds, although most are not appropriate for US-based investors. The last category, and one that we have a particular expertise in at Brown Advisory, is US funds, either mutual funds or ETFs, exchange-traded funds, that have what's called UK reporting fund status. And that makes them tax efficient from both a US and a UK standpoint. The problem becomes how you access those funds, which we'll which we'll get on a bit later. But those those are essentially the the, the three the three ways to go about tax efficiently investing as a UK US UK person, and those that that third option, that the option that Brown has that experience and, ex, uh, and expertise in, was the example that I was forewarning of when it comes to offshore income gain and the potentially UK tax inefficient status, and thus why it's so useful to have you um, here to talk about what are some of the potential solutions through these. So. What are the challenges that you face when it comes to uh, getting clients on board with a prudent US-UK uh, investment strategy? Yeah. So this is outside of 
someone that comes to us to be a formal client because we yeah. would be undertaking the, these measures for them. But the main challenge is direct stocks and bonds sounds very simple and easy. The reality is that most people are not comfortable enough and frankly, shouldn't be comfortable enough to be putting together their own portfolios of direct stocks and bonds. It carries significant investment risk to be picking individual companies when you're not doing deep fundamental analysis and have an understanding of the future cash flow profile or the competitive advantages of those businesses. And so there is just inherently more risk by picking your own securities. Now, some people find it intellectually very interesting and they are very good at it and it's a hobby or they are professionals, in which case, carry on. That is a great, a great way to go. I mean, look at the bright side. You could, at the time of recording, if you try it, you're probably not going to do worse than Mr. Musk and his his his, no. his, bet, his bet on Twitter. I'm not suggesting people, please don't go out and spend 45 or $44 billion on a, on a US company. Please take appropriate advice. I should caveat that. But yes, sorry. Uh, no, very, very well put. Uh, it'll be very interesting to see how that plays out. Mm. Um, the, the second main challenge, which which ties into the first one really is that people have a lack of diversification, or they're not able to access the diversification that either just US or just UK investors are able to implement within their portfolios. That mainly falls into the realm of parts of the market that are outside large cap developed market companies. So if you think about small companies, both in the US and outside the US, if you think about geographic diversification, emerging markets, which people tend to be shying away from today with the issues in in China and others, um, European equities, Japanese equities. These are big global liquid markets, important sources of diversification for investors, for long-term investors. And the average US-UK person picking direct stocks and bonds is not going to be able to efficiently, from a cost perspective, gain access to those, those sorts of asset classes. Mm. And then the final, the final challenge really is around the limited investment universe. Uh, we, we've talked about it. Um, I, I talked a little bit about the US-based funds that have UK reporting fund status. Of the you know, 100,000 plus funds that are in the US, I would say less than 0.1% of them have UK reporting fund status. Of the probably 100,000 funds outside the US, an even smaller percentage of those probably have the necessary U.S. reporting called PFIC reporting. So what that leaves you with is an incredibly small universe of available investment options for a U.S.-U.K. person. And so that creates lots of confusion and, and challenges. There is, uh, I, correct me if I'm wrong, HMRC keeps a list, I think, like a publicly available, it's, a, it's like a 10,000 sort of uh, row spreadsheet that you could download off of the Revenues website if you're feeling particularly insomniatic uh, uh, one night, that you can you can scroll down and you can look at those those, those funds that have uh, foreign reporting status. But uh, I don't recommend it for anyone other than the hardiest of investment management souls. No, and I have gone line by line through that list a, <laughs> a few different times. I'm I'm probably um, maybe five of the you know, eight billion people that we have on this planet that have actually done that. I will say most of those are hedge fund strategies, mm. or they are non-U.S. strategies. So they would mm. not be appropriate for U.S.-based investors. So. Even within that list of the many, many thousands of, of lines on the UK reporting fund regime, a very, very small percentage of those 
are appropriate for US-based investors. Yes, I would imagine that of the 0.0001% of the UK population that's looked at that list, another 0.0001% of those people understand what those words all mean, which leaves you with, you know, basically, probably, Billy, just you. There's a nice, t- small, tight, tight-knit group of advisors there in is. the UK, of which you know many of them do a very good job for clients. But yes, there's a very small group of us worldwide that one, have the mental capacity to to, to go through that stuff, but two, really understand the, yeah. the uh, in- intricacies of it. Sure. So clearly, funds are a great opportunity and are, and, and collective investments generally are, are, are attractive to both a US and a UK investor. I will admit, when I often hear talk of funds, my eyes go slightly cross-eyed because I've never really actually had someone explain to me what a fund actually is. To what extent is it actually just a, a grandiose term for something relatively straightforward? Could you just explain to me more than anyone else, what are we really talking about when we're talking about funds? I mean, a fund is really quite a straightforward thing in that it is an investment vehicle that pools together many, many different client assets to be able to access diversification, lower transaction costs, and more liquidity than you would be able to get if you were buying securities outright. It's a very efficient structure um, to invest, and which is why it's become so popular over the years. Uh, so really, it's, it's no more complicated than that. The opacity of it that you describe is a component, although I would say uh, that's uh, you know quite a negative way to look at it, um, or a pessimistic way mm. to look at it, or a skeptical way to look at it relative to the industry. It's also quite, I should add from a pessimistic standpoint, quite an efficient way for investment management firms to access fees. Of course. So, uh, hypothetically, I'm choosing one of the you know one of the most common funds that I say a, a entirely UK. Investor might invest in you might invest in an index fund that tracks the FTSE 100, where you own a very very small piece of a share in each of the FTSE 100 companies, and as the FTSE 100 grows, the fund grows, and so your risk is sort of uh, hedged against the FTSE 100 doing well, which is much safer as an investment than backing one company as a single stock investment inside the FTSE 100. Am I essentially right there? That's exactly right. So that that's accessing the benefit of diversification in a low in a low cost manner. Another um, co- very common reason that someone would invest in a fund is the ability to access professional managers or active management in a more efficient manner than opening up a separately managed account. And you can often do that with much lower investment minimums than you would otherwise be able to do. So funds are very common. They're not going away, but they do create tax challenges depending on the jurisdictions in which you live and, and have to pay tax in. And I presume, I presume, from a kind of an investment reporting uh, and returns perspective, it, what forms part of your discussion with clients is about risk versus reward. So, by the diversification of the portfolio and the sort of the management of that risk, you sort of necessarily take a consequential r- reduction in your return because you're, you know, that's the way the market works. You know, if you want to invest in single stock, high tech, you know, sort of emerging market tech startups you're necessarily probably going to get a greater return because it's a more 
uh, risky investment, and that's the way the world works. That is part of your discussion, presumably, with a client about what their investment outlook is, what sort of potential losses are they prepared to accept, what, what are their intentions for their portfolio, what return do they need? Is it a capital growth perspective? Do they need income generation? That is presumably an early stage discussion that you have with your new clients when they first come to you. Absolutely. And really, diversification is the only free lunch that you get in investing. And so the ability to find uncorrelated asset classes and put them together in a portfolio means that you can reduce your overall risk without necessarily reducing the overall return that you receive in the portfolio. That's part of the art of portfolio management. Um, It is what people like myself and Brown Advisory and other firms do for clients, but really accessing that diversification in the most efficient way is really done in the most part through funds for for 99% of investors out there. Absolutely. I think that kind of general introduction is going to be of great comfort to a lot of people listening to this podcast, because as you said right at the top, this can sometimes be a scary experience and and a sort of a slightly amorphous, nebulous blob where people don't quite know how to access at what point to enter into this discussion. When we come back in the second part of the episode, I'm going to be drilling down with Billy into the question of funds in more detail and what challenges arise from this and what opportunities that Brown have to meet these challenges. Join us in part two.